Welcome to the Peaceful Embodiment Podcast. I'm Jean Byrne. And I'm Chandrika Gibson. The Peaceful Embodiment Podcast is brought to you by Wisdom Yoga Institute. We are researchers and practitioners in the field of yoga and well-being, and we're going to be having conversations on this podcast together and with interview guests around the intersection of mindfulness, yoga, and living well. Thank you for joining us on the Peaceful Embodiment Journey. Welcome back to the Peaceful Embodiment podcast. Today I'm chatting with Natalie Scott. Natalie is an accredited practicing dietitian. Her business is called Be Mindful Nutrition. And I think we're going to have a lot of juicy topics to discuss today. Uh, Let me tell you more about Natalie and her background first, though. So Natalie graduated from Curtin University with a degree in nutrition and a postgraduate diploma in dietetics. She's been in practice for more than 10 years, working with clients in lots of different settings in the community, in private practice and in hospitals in Perth, as well as in regional Western Australia. Natalie specialises in working with people who are struggling with weight and body image concerns, people with disordered eating, chronic dieting and eating disorders. She approaches her work using a non-diet philosophy, the HACE or health at every size approach to helping people improve their relationship with food and to learn to care for their bodies and I guess care for themselves without dieting or restriction. That's on its own as an introduction, really speaks to this idea of peaceful embodiment, I think, because the way that we eat is so closely tied to the way we feel about ourselves and the experience we have living these lives in these bodies. So I'd love to learn more about this topic from you and maybe along the way we might challenge each other a little bit, me coming from a naturopathic background and obviously a yoga background as well and for you coming from um, what I'm guessing at the moment is the more evidence-based side of things the dietetics but we'll see we'll see what we figure out as we go along. Natalie tell us more about you how did you find your way to becoming a dietitian? Well thanks for that lovely introduction Chandrika. Um, Yeah so Well, the way that I actually um, found my way to becoming a dietitian is not all that interesting. It was just that I was um, interested in health, interested in science, and also interested in helping people. So it kind of just aligned that, um, you know, just I guess the stars aligned, and I decided to um, go down the route of studying science. And then I had to choose a specialty area. But I guess the more interesting thing would be... um, you know, after I graduated, I studied dietetics at Curtin, as you said, and um, I started to work with, with people in the community and, and started to realise that my training really didn't equip me to, yeah, to deal with um, or to, to help people in a way that felt, felt right to me and felt that it was helpful, most helpful for them. And so that's when I started to, yeah, to do a bit more reading and research and came across the health at every size um, and intuitive eating type paradigms and which really aligned with what I was seeing was going to be most helpful for clients. And um, as I did more study and research and I went to training around the area of intuitive eating and health at every size, I, I learned that there's another approach that Um, that I could help people that wasn't a weight focused weight centric approach um, but more a way of helping people to take care of their bodies um, 
in a more gentle, caring manner, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. Do people know when they're coming to see you that that's the approach that you're going to take? I think most people most people do because um, I have it quite clearly on my website, and um, and so they, you know, so usually they do know they've read a bit about it, um, but often um, they, yeah, sometimes they might come and actually not not have any idea and um and then I sort of introduce the the approach and explain to them that it's um not we're not going to be focusing on weight instead we're going to be focusing on health and health behaviors um and support them to to look after themselves in a way that's um yeah that's a bit more gentle and and caring and most people are actually really ready to hear that because they they come to me and they've um they've been struggling with their relationship with food they've struggled with dieting um, and restriction and and they've realized that that really doesn't work for them and it doesn't um, actually end up in the you know they might lose weight in the short term but inevitably they end up uh, regaining that weight and end up often heavier than before they started the, the diet and and often it can just be this um, you know it's it's just quite torturous and and fighting against their bodies constantly is is quite a battle so people are often ready to to try a different approach to health and well-being and um and so even if they haven't come specifically for a non-diet haze approach they are often willing to give it a go and yeah Mm, yeah I really hear that idea of fighting against their own bodies I mean, the whole diet industry, that's what it's set up to do, isn't it? To make us feel the opposite of peacefully embodied, to make us feel like we're not okay the way we are. And if we change the size and composition of these physical forms we live in, that somehow we'd be better. Yeah. (laughs) Not just better in terms of health outcomes, but we'd be a superior human being if we were slim and lean and whatever the norm that is held up to be the ideal is. Is it confusing for people, do you think, this health at every size when the kind of mainstream paradigm seems to be screaming at us all the time that health equals lean? Yeah, yeah, I think it is um, It is confusing and we, we are bombarded with the message, as you say, that that lean equals healthy, fat equals, you know, not healthy. Um, and so, you know, so it can be really hard for people to come to grips or, yeah, come to terms with that, um, that health is not equated to weight. Um, there's actually a good, a good way to sort of, um, I guess, talk about this is to, um, to look at the, I guess, yeah, because we sold the message that, um, that, that being overweight is the cause of certain diseases and and ill health so you know there's links between being overweight and diabetes links between being overweight and cardiovascular disease um but at the end of the day that there's a correlation there there's um you know there's a correlation between weight and certain diseases but correlation doesn't equal isn't causation and so um a good example to think about this that's not weight related is um the links between um baldness and so they've found that that men that are bald actually have a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease um and so you know would we look at that and say oh baldness causes cardiovascular disease disease no we wouldn't we would actually when we look deeper into the research we see that um, men that ha- are bald actually have higher levels of testosterone and higher levels of testosterone are 
linked with the, you know, our, what's causing the higher risk of um, cardiovascular disease. And so in this instance, um, testosterone levels are like the confounding factor. It's kind of the sort of that underlying factor that might explain that link between baldness and cardiovascular disease. So the same is with weight. There are so many other things that um, we're not focusing on when we're saying weight is, um, when we're equating weight and health. Um, there, what about, we do, we're not looking at all the health and health behaviours that people are engaging in. Like when people do lose weight, um, they say, oh, look, it's the weight, the weight loss has caused an improvement in their, um, their health um, and health outcomes. But we're ignoring all the other things that have gone into that weight loss, it, you know, like the increased fruit and vegetable consumption, um, improved diet quality, improved um, levels of physical activity. There's, there's so many other factors that we're sort of turning a blind eye or sort of not giving as much weight to as this the weight it's uh, <laughs> not giving as much weight to the weight no I didn't mean that yeah, um, yeah so an interesting thing that's um the research is showing more and more now is um this uh the topic of weight stigma have you heard much about weight stigma yes and I wanted to ask you about that because I think your example of baldness is really good but there's no social stigma around being bald I mean maybe it's not the most desirable most attractive but there's plenty of famous men who don't have hair so there's not too much of an objection you know women aren't driving around with stickers on our cars saying no bald guys (laughs) (laughs) so weight is something else it's not just a way of judging people on their health or lack thereof Mm is it as inaccurate as that obviously must be, but it's also a judgment. You know, people equate bigger people, people who are fat, I'm just going to say fat rather than overweight or obese because I prefer it. People think that you're lazier. They think that you're less competent. They assume that you're less intelligent. People will find it harder to get work when they're in a body of a bigger size. So there's all of this stuff that goes around having more adipose tissue, having more fat, that is nothing to do with health. So is that what you mean by stigma, that there's a stigma associated with weight? Yeah. So, yeah, weight stigma is is referring to the, as you said there, there's, um, there's discrimination against people that are in larger bodies. And, um, and as you say, people face, in my line of work, I, you know, it breaks my heart when I hear clients telling me about their experience with going to the doctor, for example, and they might go in there for a, you know, a broken foot or a, um, a cold and flu symptoms and get a lecture about their weight. And it's just, it's completely unrelated to the reason why they went there in the first place. And yet they're then faced with this sort of um, being belittled and and sort of told off about their weight. And, um, yeah, and, and so the stigma actually, um, the research is showing that stigma actually results in obviously shame and, um, and feelings of being less than, um, which actually leads to this chronic stress felt by the body. And this, this chronic stress is actually, um, you know, it can actually explain a lot of these poor health outcomes in people in larger bodies again going back to the health but it's um you know that that weight stigma is is being shown more and more to be a really big problem and that's where health at every size helps to actually support people regardless of their body size um to you know to pursue health and health behaviors if that's what they want to do but also to feel at home and comfortable in their bodies so that's where that's where that approach really aligns with my values and yeah 
Yeah, and with mine, that's definitely peaceful embodiment in action. But it is very difficult if we recognise that even help-seeking behaviour, like going to see a general practitioner because you've got a health issue, that you're not going to get the same level of service, you're not going to be treated equally, that kind of bigotry, that definitely impacts, you know, just hearing that as an example, I can feel in my body the experiences I've had in the medical settings and where you feel like, well, I'm not going to then open up to this practitioner. I'm not going to ask them about my migraines that are the you know, second or third thing on my list of things to talk about because I'm, I'm already feeling ashamed. I'm feeling unwelcome in this space. I'm feeling like you actually don't care about me. You can't see me as a person. All you're seeing is this excess fat or you think it's excess. For me, it's my natural set point and you're judging me and you're treating me like a lesser human being. That's bigotry. That's, that's you know, something that we don't tolerate other groups being mistreated in the way that, you know, the society maybe has done in the past. But fat people, we seem to still think that's okay because their health is a burden on the health system and, you know, we're all paying for it in our taxpayers' dollars. So how dare the fatties go to get their health looked after in the medical system? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's shocking. And, um, and that's where, you know... I guess in terms of um, finding a health practitioner that is, you know, aligned, like I guess has those values of um, being supportive of you regardless of your body shape and size. That's where health at every size um, can be helpful because there's actually a website like Hayes Australia where you can search for um, in your area, in your local area, you can search for health practitioners that do um, practice from a Hayes perspective. Um, But I must say it's very much lacking in in terms of GPs, unfortunately. Um, and I'm still on the lookout for GPs that are haze aligned because <laughs> um, I'm yet to find. Well, I've found a couple that are open to the idea and you know starting to learn more, which is really um, encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's kind of you you might feel. Um, less inclined to open up and to to ask for help or to get the the appropriate treatment. And that's where we see, you know, people getting um, misdiagnosed or not not, um, diagnosed early enough because they delay treatment or delay seeking help because of that um, shame that they feel going to seek help. Mm, mm. And then when the health condition that maybe they do have symptoms of, there is a correlation with extra weight, then I think there's even more shame piled on top of that. I know we we mentioned before we started, a lot of my work is with people diagnosed with cancer. And sometimes the presentations that I'm giving do mention this link between larger body sizes, higher BMIs, which is a horrible measure. We can talk about that too and increased incidence of cancer. And there's various reasons for that. There's theories about the inflammatory cytokines that are released by the adipose tissue. There's theories about the hormonal side of things, that there may be more um, naturally occurring estrogens that give rise to some of the hormone-sensitive cancers. But the way I look at it is by the time that person's got a diagnosis, even if there is a lifestyle factor, it's not their fault that they got cancer and there's no real benefit in bringing it up at the point of diagnosis, you know? Like, yes, people who smoke increase their risk and, yes, people who eat, you know, a not-great diet increase their risk in certain ways. Yeah. But when they come to that pointy end of needing help, 
who are we as health professionals to then start to berate them for what they've done to get to this point that just seems so counter to our claims of being there to care, of being compassionate, of being, you know, someone who will treat everybody without discrimination. It just doesn't play out that way. And so I think that people do avoid in some ways seeking help, which brings me back to one of the the earlier questions that I had, which is about how people find practitioners. So you mentioned that the Hayes Australia website has a searchable database. That's fantastic. But that maybe not all disciplines are represented there. Are are they mostly dietitians that people can find? No, on there, um, there's also psychologists and um, I think that's a good question. I, I think there's a few GPs and some exercise physiologists, but yeah, but but it is limited and, and it needs to be. Um, but that's the only place that I'm aware of that you can, you know, actually go on and search for. And and then obviously myself, um, because I am a Hayes practitioner, I, I have a network of, of people in Perth that I um, feel comfortable referring clients to, like if they are looking for a psychologist or a, a personal trainer, even I found one that is Hayes aligned, which was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it's just, um, I guess, once you've, found someone, they might be able to point you in the right direction if you're needing support in other areas. Yeah. Sometimes you have to just put your blinkers on. I know I've sent out information to personal trainers in particular after copying some of that that talk and yoga teachers sometimes do this as well. Just dropping little things in about how, you know, you've earned your dinner when you go home from this session or you've burnt off your Easter eggs or whatever it is. And it just, it makes me kind of, yeah, cross and And also feel a little bit shamed, like I came here to have a good experience, to move my body in a way that feels good and to benefit my health. Mm -hmm. And now you're bringing it back to this crunching of numbers, calories in, calories out, which is not the reason why I would choose to go to exercise or choose to go to yoga. But I know it is the reason why some people do choose to do those things. So I can see that the, the marketplace is quite quite a continuum there that people can get kind of what they're looking for. If they're looking to focus in on calorie control and weight loss, they could find plenty of practitioners to help them. But I think the marketplace is also really confusing when it comes to nutrition because there's so many different levels of qualification. So lots of people put themselves out there as a nutritionist or put themselves out there as a food coach But what you are, an accredited practicing dietitian, that's a lot more years of study typically, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit about the different types of nutrition professionals there are? Yeah, so you're right there that that is quite confusing. Um, And and the thing is that nutritionist as a um, qualification, it's not actually a a protected term. So anyone can actually call themselves a nutritionist, like even if you've just done, you know, a an hour online course or something you could just say I'm a nutritionist um but there are people that have studied um you know say they've gone to university or they've they've studied a bit more of an intensive nutrition course they they would probably be a bit more um reliable than say your personal trainer that's just done a you know an online training for a few hours um so that yeah, so that nutritionist term is not not actually a protected term. Whereas, say, to become a, a dietitian, you have to have studied an undergrad bachelor in um, nutrition, and then have gone on to do um, like myself. I did a postgrad in dietetics, and now it's a master's in dietetics. Um, so, 
so yeah, I guess. Um, and, but then the thing is as well with dietitians, um, even if you are an accredited practicing dietitian, there, there's kind of like a spectrum or even within dietetics, like there's, there's those like myself that practice as a, a Hayes practitioner using non-diet approach to health and well-being. Whereas then, as you said, there are, um, you can find a dietitian if you're wanting to calorie count and just focus on weight loss. And um, so, so at the end of the day, it's really important to, um, even if someone's got a qualification, it doesn't mean that, that that's going to result in, that they're going to give you the same advice, which, which is a bit concerning but um but but so it's really important to do your research you know look at their website um have a look at what they do what their areas of interest and specialty are um maybe even some some people offer like phone calls where you can you know have a chat with them and see what they they're all about um because so so it's i can understand it's very confusing for the general public to know you know where to turn or what they're going to get um yeah does that kind of answer yeah, question. it does. I guess I'm really curious about, you know, where the evidence really lies because it's quite hard, isn't it, to test nutrition on human subjects. Yeah. You can't really do a randomised controlled trial and just give one group blueberries and one group grapes and the third group nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can guess what the outcomes are going to be. So is it, true, is it fair to say that accredited practising dietitians are practising evidence-based nutrition yeah I'd say that is yeah it's definitely fair to say although I uh, the the thing is that the evidence is shows that dieting for example um if we're looking at weight loss and people go to see a dietitian because they want to lose weight um the evidence actually shows that um, weight loss, whatever shape or form you're trying to achieve it in, like if you're, you know, going on a restrictive diet, even, um, you know, because dietitians would say, oh, we don't promote diets or fad diets. But at the end of the day, a lot of dietitians will promote um, uh, portion control, like, you know, yeah, um, I guess cutting out certain, you know, high fat foods or limiting your intake of these, these foods in order to result um, to, to um, get weight loss. Um, but at the end of the day, the research actually shows that 95% of people that embark on any sort of weight loss journey end up regaining the weight after two to five year period. And a lot of people actually end up heavier than they were before they started the diet. And so if you're asking about evidence-based, like the thing is in, from my you know, my opinion and the work that I do, I don't think that is very evidence-based from promoting a, um, like a focus on weight and weight loss. So, yeah, so that's quite concerning. (laughs) Yeah, nothing really changes people's body size, actually, does it? I mean, ageing, things do change as we go go through our developmental cycles, but essentially you can't diet yourself down to a different size. Yeah. And, and, you know, (laughs) the thing with, um, you know, I I help people using non-diet and intuitive eating approaches. And, um, for some people, perhaps if, if they, they learn to actually listen to their bodies, eat intuitively, you know, um, eat according to hunger and fullness, um, but not in a dieting sort of mindset. Um, they might, some people's body weight might actually change, like as in they might lose weight. Some people would stay the same and some people actually gain weight using an intuitive eating approach. So, um, so, but it's all like you said to do with the the set point, like our our set weight range that is sort of determined. It's determined by our genetics, but it's also in, influenced by a 
a heap of factors like, um, you know, our dieting history can actually, if we've dieted a lot, that can change our set point because um, our bodies actually are amazing and they can um, adapt and adjust to um, reduced calorie intake. So if we've been restricting and dieting previously, um, that actually sets up our body to um, to change in terms of like our our metabolism slows down in terms of to sort of conserve energy. Our, our body has certain shifts, so we start to think about food more. We start to um, we start to um, food tastes great. Um, so so people that have perhaps dieted um, a lot in the past, their set point can actually shift up because every time you you sort of embark on a weight loss journey um you lose weight and then you end up regaining weight and and then some so so it can um so it can kind of shift that weight set point yes i follow someone who she considers herself a survivor of the biggest loser and uh, she's written extensively she's written a wonderful book and she blogs a lot about her experiences and i'm sure i've seen somewhere in her content that they did study some of the previous contestants on the biggest loser and they measured their basal metabolic rates and it was some something drastic and i might get this wrong but it was something like a 20% lower basal metabolic rate after having been on the show so does that mean well tell me what that means for the rest of their life is it harder then to maintain the weight loss yeah and that's and that's why um those uh, contestants on The Biggest Loser, most of them have, have regained the weight or more after the show, and that's by no fault of their own. It's actual, it's biology. It's um, it's the that restrictive eating in such a severe way on The Biggest Loser um, has actually reduced their basal metabolic rate. And um, and so for, for the rest of their lives, if they're wanting to maintain that lower weight, they have to eat less and less and less. You know, it just, it's just not sustainable, and that's where people will just end up regaining that weight. Mm. And from a kind of humanistic perspective, that just seems like cruelty, putting people on show while taking them away from, and I want to get into this idea of intuitive eating, but taking them away from their own internal cues of what their body needs because you still need to eat. I mean, I think uh, I've had this experience as someone who lives in a larger body of having like a lunch with people and there'll be, you know, two or three very thin women who sort of eat just a salad and I'm quite like a hearty meal. And I see the judgment that happens and I think, but you don't know. You don't know anything about the rest of my lifestyle or anything else. You're judging on what I'm eating publicly. And I can see this in those kinds of public performative shows as well like let's make the fat people more virtuous by making sure that they don't get to comfort themselves with food or they don't get to follow their natural inclination to self-soothe and you mentioned with the weight stigma that the stressors that people have we feel them in our bodies and so sometimes there is like an emotional or a hormonal drive to eat more to eat more carbohydrates to kind of comfort yourself with food, and it seems really unfair to judge people harshly on that. So what I want to circle back around to then is when we've been swimming in this swamp of toxic diet culture, all of us, all of our lives have, how do we come home to our bodies? How do we get back in touch with what is intuitive eating? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because, um, yeah, intuitive eating is 
you know, we're all, we are all born intuitive eaters. And as you say, by swimming in this diet culture, um, and we kind of lose our way. Um, if you think about a baby, you know, a baby will cry, cry out when, when they're hungry, they'll feed until they're full and satisfied. Um, obviously unless they have feeding difficulties or some other things going on, but naturally babies do, um, eat intuitively, um, and, and young children as well. You can, you see young children, they, eat half a cupcake and run away or you know they um they're sort of able to just eat more on one, on some days and eat less on other days they sort of regulate their eating quite naturally whereas um as you say as we get older we unlearn the, these skills and and part of that might be you know we're we're taught to clean our plates at the dinner table and you know we're taught that dessert is only allowed as a treat or um it's sort of this food to be feared you know sugar is bad all of those messages sort of um teach us that we can't trust our bodies and we can't possibly listen to our bodies to guide us in in ways of eating um and so that's where intuitive eating as a um a set of principles so it was actually um it, it's actually a self-care eating framework is how it's sort of um um de defined um and it was uh developed sorry by two dietitians in 1995 um elise resch and evelyn triboli um and they um sort of came up with these 10 principles to to support people to eat um to become more in tune with their bodies again and to eat in a way that um supports good health and well-being not just physical health but also mental health um and it, it's it helps people to um, tune into their body cues, listen to, you know, hunger, fullness, but also take into account satisfaction. As you were talking about earlier, you know, um, food is such a soothing um, a, a thing that, that should be pleasurable. It shouldn't be demonized. Um, and so it, it's a way of helping people to learn to trust their bodies again. Um, and it also incorporates um, one of the other principles of, of intuitive eating is is supporting people with joyful movement and that's um that's one I really love because in this day and age we're sort of it's promoted that we should be you know um thrashing our bodies at the gym or doing some some exercise to punish our bodies for what we've eaten like you know like those um personal trainers might say um and and so intuitive eating is uh, even though it's set called intuitive, eat, intuitive eating it's also incorporates movement so helping supporting people to um do movement that feels good and um um yeah and and is sustainable and enjoyable rather than mm. yeah beautiful and that fits very much with our approach to yoga and yoga therapy and yeah working in a way that is about caring for yourself coming out of a place of love not a place of fear or hatred or self-punishment but it's get, it gets very murky on the inside for people, I think, to assess that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, we invite people to move joyfully, but when we invite them to move joyfully in a yoga class, for example, we recognise that for some people they're coming in contact with their body in a way that's different. And if they have had patterns of survival that are a bit dissociative, they're kind of living from the neck up, then feeling their body can be really confronting. And in yoga, you often feel parts of your body against other parts of your body. You know, you're kind of resting your belly over your legs in certain positions. And so I know that some people's inner 
conversation with themselves pipes up about that, about, you know, why can't I reach my arm in that direction? It's because my arm's not good enough or my waist's too thick or my leg gets in the way. Yeah. And they kind of, the, the self-hatred talk kicks in again. Mm. So what's in those 10 points of intuitive eating? Can you give us some, some more pointers for how we can feel from the inside? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's a really good point because I, that's what I love about yoga is that it does help people to, you know, to connect with their bodies um, and to to be, I guess, more at peace and in, at home in their bodies. But um, as you say, if, if people are not used to that, um, and that can be really confronting and scary and that inner critic sort of pipes up and, and can be quite, yeah, quite... Um, demanding of, of your attention um so <laughs> inner critic is well versed because of all those outer critics <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's got yeah. all the mean words <laughs> so um so yeah so the 10 principles of intuitive eating that um maybe just to you know give some examples um one of them is making peace with food um which is teaching um teaching us to sort of let go of the the idea of good and bad foods so you know that um that whole you know that sort of sets us up for you know obviously if we eat something that's labeled a bad food how are we then going to feel about ourselves we're going to feel pretty bad so i i teach and support people to let go of that notion of good and bad foods and and giving themselves permission to eat all foods um which can be really scary and challenging to begin with um i think that is that is a challenging notion because everything that you every bit of dietary information that you can find is a green light red light um kind of scenario i think i might have said this to you in one of the email interactions that i had a look at noom which is supposedly the kind of millennials version of weight watchers meant to be better than you know those old fashioned kind of calorie counting things and although I think that I'm, you know, very much peacefully embodied, very much accepting of my own body, I still get drawn into this kind of cultural milieu from time to time. And I did think, all right, I'm going to try it. If I track what I eat, then I'll know where I'm lying to myself. That was really my main motivation because I think I eat mostly good foods. And so I thought I'll track it in this diet app. But what pissed me off, many things about the app, but it's, it's still the same. It's still good, medium, bad. It's still red light, amber light, green light. Mm-hmm. Have as much as you want of these green light things. But, ooh, naughty, naughty. It's still a bad food list. It's It hasn't changed at all, really. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just the same. Oh, I don't want to swear on here, but, <laughs> yeah, it's just um, and the same thing but just, dr- just dressed up in a fancy way. And, um, you know, maybe it could be helpful to define, like, what is a diet? I'm using inverted commas as well. Because because um, these days it's quite actually challenging to see, you know. So what what is actually a diet? Um, because because they're sort of using clever marketing and they they've obviously no, noted now that um, that dieting is a taboo word or like you you know don't want to be restricting or calorie counting. So we're going to just sell it in a different way. And so um, you know the way that I sort of look at what is a diet or um, yeah, a diet is basically it kind of has these four major themes um, where sort of the pursuit of weight loss is at the forefront. So that would be, you know, if, if that's kind of one of the main goals of this eating sort of way, that would probably be your 
a bit of a red flag that this is a diet. Um, you know, are there some rules about what to eat, when to eat, how to eat? That's, you know, again, maybe a bit of a red flag there. Um, you know, are they promoting things like, like you said, sort of food lists of good and bad foods um, or ca promoting calorie counting or, um, you know, eating certain only am certain amounts and portions? Again, that's um, another red flag for being a diet. And then things that encourage you to ignore your body signals. So the amount of times I'll see um, even people online saying, like, don't eat after 7 p.m. or um, just drink water. You can't possibly be hungry. All of those sort of things are the, the hallmarks of, of a diet. Um, and so that can be helpful for people because, yeah, the thing is there's going to be you know, different things coming out all the time. Um, and, and they might just catch your attention and that sound, Oh, that sounds promising. But if you, you know, sort of have a look at it closely and, um, with a bit of a microscope and, and have a look, think about those things that could be helpful. Um, and, and as you said that, um, was it Noom, was it the, yeah. yeah. And those sort of ones, um, and I think Weight Watchers is now marketing themselves as WW and it's all about wellness, you know, so they grab onto these, you know, because as I said, dieting is taboo. So they've found now a wellness and intuitive eating are, you know, in vogue. So we'll, we'll use those words to sort of um, capture the a new market basically. So, yeah, so it can be really hard for, for people that are just wanting to look after themselves and eat in, eat in a healthy way um, to get sort of caught up in, in all of that. It is. It's a real minefield. I saw someone had written a great post, a medium um, blog about the unbearable whiteness and fat phobia of health at every size practitioners, because it does seem a little bit like these philosophies have now been co-opted. You know, they used to be about making safe spaces for fat people. They used to be quite kind of radical and pushing back against society's norms. Mm -hmm. But in, maybe it's a good thing in a way that they have become more part of the mainstream conversation. But then you see it get co-opted as a marketing tool, which is really a very thin veneer of hiding a diet as a meal plan, as a healthy eating guide, as an intuitive eating approach, yeah. when really it is. It's a diet just with a little bit of fancy stuff Glitter. on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's the, even, even if someone says they, they can help you with intuitive eating, it's still unfortunately not guaranteed that they're, you know, because intuitive eating is being co-opted. Um, and so, yeah, so it's really challenging. <laughs> to, mm. I want to come back to what you said about the, the babies and the children because I've seen this. I've got two boys and they were both demand breastfed and they were both, you know, pretty much boobaholics but they <laughs> were always, you know, they looked healthy. Actually, one of them's more chunky in build than the other but they, you know, they grew appropriately and developed really well and they knew exactly what they needed when they needed it. But then once they started to eat more solid food – it became apparent as a parent that you do have to assert some boundaries. So my approach to food, because of the way I grew up, I was always like, no, they can have whatever they want whenever they want it. The pantry and the fridge are open. The fruit bowl's always there. Go for it because they know what they need. But then as they got into kind of school age, it was clear that they didn't necessarily know what they needed and that the food industry was very clever in the fact that those foods kind of are addictive. You know, the crackers and the cookies and the things that are high sugar, high fat, they do hit a certain mark in the brain that makes you want more, don't they? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I guess in terms of um, 
like I'm, I don't have kids myself, so I can't speak to, you know, feeding children, but, um, I, um, in terms of, yeah, food in the food industry, you know, obviously, um, adding, you know, sugars to foods to make them taste good and salt to, to make them taste good. Um, yeah, there's, there is, um, a lot of that, but the, I guess in terms of food being, are you talking to sort of food being addictive or? Is that yeah, and also in terms of like we're saying for, for adults, we might give ourselves permission to have all foods available, but actually sometimes that's not right if you can't control your inner child or if, you're, <laughs> if your inner child is off, the, <laughs> off on some kind of other <laughs> mission yeah. to yeah. eat everything that's yummy yeah. or for whatever, you know, whatever's driving yeah. that behaviour. Yeah. There is a part of it that is created by the food industry that's really different than if we were intuitively eating out of a choice of only whole foods. Instead, if we're trying to intuitively eat and we live, you know, with service stations and supermarkets and aisles and aisles full of differently packaged but perfectly chemically balanced to yeah, make to us salivate taste. and make us feel a dopamine hit or whatever it is. How do we come at that from an intuitive eating mm. perspective? Yeah, so um, so actually the, there's a lot of research um, in the, the field of um food actually being addictive and and the the research shows that it's although um you know because people say that we get this sort of yeah dopamine hit um but it it's not actually um yeah the the research shows that it's not the same as like a drug addiction or a a drug dependence in that way so sugar's not cocaine no it's not the same no but but often what what will what I see with the clients that I work with that they feel sort of out of control with with certain foods like you know chocolate or I don't know chips or those foods that are perhaps high sugar high fat high salt um they they do tend to feel quite out of control around those foods but what we uh, most of the time what we find is that the reason that they feel out of control around those foods that there's a, a couple of reasons but one is um often there's uh, a sort of because they've set up that, that whole good and bad food that that yeah that good and bad food mindset actually sets us up to sort of want those foods more it's kind of like I guess because we're we're human and um and like as you say our inner child if we're told we're not allowed to have something and something's bad that's all we're going to want to think about <laughs> it's kind of um yeah so so it kind of sets us up to crave those foods because we're in our mind we are depriving ourselves of those foods because they're not allowed and they're bad so it sets us up to feel you know deprived and and that kind of builds up to then these intense cravings and then when we inevitably eat the food because we're human um we'll eat the food then we'll feel terrible and ashamed and we might end up often eating more than we would normally if we were allowing ourselves to freely eat that food because there's this there's this thought like i might not get to eat that food again um, because it's bad so i'm going to eat all of it now um and then that inevitably leads to guilt and shame which kind of just sets off this this cycle again of like of i've got to deprive myself i can't be trusted around chocolate um and so so that's the the restriction from a, a mindset point of view which can set up that sort of drive or feeling of out of control around certain foods but often what I see with clients is um there's an underlying physical deprivation in in that they're not fueling their bodies adequately throughout the day and that actually can lead to these 
yeah, high cravings and feeling um, because our bodies uh, um, drive us to to fuel them because that's our way of surviving basically. So if you're under fueling or under eating, um, that kind of actually sets us up to be more prone to you know not being able to go past the chocolate aisle without um, grabbing something or popping into the service station or yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it, it reflects what you said earlier about the 95% of diets resulting in weight regain or even higher weight afterwards because, yeah, once we go into deprivation, yeah. we want to make up for the shortfall yeah. both biologically and psychologically. It's all interlinked, isn't it? Yeah, and so it's um, it can take some time. Like when I work with clients, they – in, in the short term, you know, to start with when, when we're talking about permission to eat all foods, um, they can there's kind of like this honeymoon period where people feel like, oh, yay, I can eat all of the foods and they, you know, go a bit nuts because obviously they've been deprived for so long and, and they can feel a bit out of control and they can, you know, eat perhaps things that they they wouldn't want to eat so often they can eat them daily but after a while um when they they learn to eat regularly and adequately and fuel their bodies well um and then start to listen to their internal cues people um most more often than not find that those foods are actually less appealing and yes they'll still want to eat chocolate and cookies and and those things but they're not um one of the critics criticism sorry of intuitive eating is that oh we're just promoting people to eat donuts all day long or you know it's it's not that's not what it's about it's about helping people to feel at peace around food and and feel um that they can have the donut when they want it if they really feel like it but you know they can also have the salad and those foods are morally neutral like it's not um you're not a better person for choosing the salad (laughs) yeah that is just so pervasive though that idea that there is some kind of moral hierarchy to food and eating even hearing you say you can eat all the donuts it makes me think oh yeah but I would never eat the donuts (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, because donuts are bad like it's just this this ingrained message that we all have but so is what we're trying to take out of that that's almost like an experiment then is it that we're supposed to realize then actually the donuts aren't very satisfying and then our natural appetite for something that does meet our true nutritional needs will kick in. Is that part of the the approach? Well, it's with intuitive eating, we're not um, doing this to you know get people sick of donuts and not ever wanting to eat them again. It's more yeah. Like <laughs> so you it's said, not like what people used to do: smoke a whole packet of cigarettes so that you'll never smoke again. It's not <laughs> no, that. No, not that. No, <laughs> okay. no. It's it's just more recognizing um, that that when we have permission to eat all foods as our bodies we we naturally go for a a diverse range of foods and and variety of foods and and that's what intuitive eating um a lot of the research has shown is that um diet quality actually improves with intuitive eating because um yeah because when you when you're eating to um appetite to taste to satisfaction um you're eating um you know you know to things that actually make your, your body feel good, you're, you're naturally going to choose a wide variety of foods. And that will include some donuts and it'll include some salad and, you know, it'll include all the foods. And so um, that's kind of the goal is, is to get to a place where you're not being sort of guided by these external, uh, external reasons to eat like meal plans and calories and, and, and all of those things. And you're, you're using your internal sort of guidance system to help you eat. 
I love that. I love that because that, that is what we're trying to get to with yoga is interoception and feeling from the inside what movement is joyful, what food is nourishing, even what people do you want to be around, what interactions are nurturing to you as a whole human being. That's very much what we're, we're about. Have you got another principle for us from intuitive eating? Um, we're just about ready to wrap up, I think, but maybe one more of those intuitive eating principles would be cool. Yeah. Um, so what, what one would be good to talk to? Um, uh, I think maybe discovering the satisfaction factor is one of them. And um, that's all about... Um, you know, discovering, yeah, the satisfaction and joy and pleasure in eating, um, which I, I teach clients around mindfulness and, and approaching eating in a mindful, mindful way. And, and that can actually, um, yeah, um, actually pausing and, um, taking in, taking in the food, you know, uh, smelling the food, tasting the food, noticing the sensation in your mouth and your body that actually can help to, to build a connection between your body and the food, which sounds a bit strange, but it can, it can help to, um, to increase awareness uh, of how that food is, is feeling, but it can also in, increase satisfaction and, and yeah, enjoyment out of the food. Um, and so what, what I find with helping clients in this way, they, they notice, um, that, as, as you say, sometimes they notice that that foods that they once found so, um, like that they craved so much, like, yeah, maybe donuts. I, I mean, talking about donuts. Too much, but, <laughs> it's because uh, of the COVID thing. We're having a donut day. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Wh- whichever food it might be. Most of the time it would be chocolate when, when I'm talking with clients, they'll say, you know, they just can't control themselves around chocolate and they eat the whole block and it, it you know, whatever it might be. Um, but when, when we talk about, you know, satisfaction and, and look at bringing in a bit of mindfulness, um, people actually start to notice that they're, they're actually satisfied and have had sufficient chocolate, um, after, you know, much less than they would have in the past. And, and it's not the goal that we're trying to get people to eat less chocolate. It's more just actually eating in a way that, um, that, you know, that yeah, it makes you feel good and and physically and mentally afterwards. Um, and and I guess with that permission to eat, because that's a big part of it, is that people feel I because I don't have permission to eat this food all the time. I'm going to eat the whole thing. Um, so you get permission to eat, but bringing in that satisfaction factor, people notice most of the time when I'm working with people, they notice. Oh, actually, I'm really satisfied and I've had enough after a few pieces or rows or whatever it might be. Um, so that's a really big part of intuitive eating is satisfaction. Mm, so using all your senses and taking some time. Yeah, that Slowing sounds <laughs> that sounds really sensible because then you take away the the other things that food can maybe do that are not so helpful, like the numbing and the kind of emotional shutting down that some people find that they're they're eating mindlessly yeah. to do, which is a stress response yeah, yeah yeah and and that is a natural response to stress um some people turn to food for that um to relieve stress and 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 we don't want to demonize or shame people for doing that at all because it's a it's perfectly fine to comfort eat or eat for comfort um but i sort of help people um around if if that's like their main coping mechanism with um using using food to soothe then then we can sort of 
help them around that and and obviously engaging in a, with a psychologist if if that's necessary in in some cases mm, yeah and then all the stress management stuff kind of ties into it doesn't it so you want to move joyfully exercise in a way that's appropriate and learn to manage your breath and learn to manage your stress reactions so it's it's everything that we we do in yoga which is yeah really self-knowledge svadhyaya seems to be kind of a key thing that you would get out of approaching your food this way yeah Yeah, that's beautiful so can we finish then with your top tips for how we can be more peacefully embodied through our eating your top tips to help us eat well and live at peace in our bodies yeah sure um so i think it's hard to some like to sort of pick a few but um i i think I sort of, yeah, I thought about three, three different ones that I think would be, you know, helpful. But um, I think one of the key things is to try and let go of the diet mentality. But, you know, I know I'm understanding it's, it's all pervasive, it's everywhere. But if we can sort of try to let go of those rules around eating, those, um, you know, good and bad foods, um, which, as we said, just ends up in this cycle of deprivation and restriction and overeating. Um, so instead, um, approaching, yeah, approaching food from an intuitive eating perspective, and and it might be helpful to um, to engage with a professional that works in the area of you know can can support you. Um, there's a lot of reading that you can do. There's um, the, a great book called Intuitive Eating by. Evelyn Tribley and Elise Resch, if you wanted to sort of read through each of the principles in a lot more detail and get support in that way. So I think letting go of the dieting mentality, because that that really disconnects us from our body and and is the opposite of peaceful embodiment in in that it um, it's it, yes, it's basically teaching us we can't be trusted and we can't um, accept our bodies the way that they are. Um, so that would be yeah one of the main the main tips. And I think. Um, um, yeah, joy, you know, moving our bodies in ways that feel good. So that joyful movement, which is one of the principles of intuitive eating. I think, um, you know, if you think about what you're currently doing for, for movement um, and think about is that something that actually brings you joy and, and feels good or is that something you're doing to punish your body or um, or burn all the calories you ate or whatever it might be. So because um, because we know that if we're moving way, in ways that are, um, joyful, we're going to be um, able to sustain that for for long term, and and that's going to be positive for our physical and mental health. Um, so so I guess those would be some of my tips around it. <laughs> They're fantastic tips. I'm definitely going to try to embody them a bit more. Natalie, how can people find you? Your your business is called Be Mindful Nutrition. Where where will people find you? Yeah. So um so my website would be the best place to learn more about me it's bemindfulnutrition.com.au and I practice in West Perth Uh, I see clients in person in West Perth as well as do um, online consultations if um, if required and I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under be mindful nutrition
Excellent. Well, I hope that people will look you up and I hope that all of us on this journey to peaceful embodiment will keep learning about these beautiful frameworks and philosophies that I think can really help us make that shift and not just make the shift internally, but also to be able to share it and communicate it. Those of us who are in the role of educators or practitioners, it's really important that we do this work on ourselves and that we find some useful language. And you've really been super helpful with some great language around how we can express what's wrong with diet culture and how we can express how we can be good to ourselves, nurture ourselves and live with a greater sense of peace in our bodies. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Chat soon. Thanks so much for joining us on the Peaceful Embodiment podcast today. If anything that has been discussed in this episode has raised concerns for you or equally has inspired you and sparked ideas that you would like to get in touch with us about, you can reach out to us through our various social media platforms. We would love you to subscribe to this channel, leave a review and feel free to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. Be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Wisdom Yoga Institute.